Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today we're talking to four-time Academy Award winner Richard Edlund, visual effects legend of the original trilogy. From the early days of ILM to his groundbreaking work on Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist, and more, this is Talking Bay 94, Episode 19, Richard Edlund. talking about is how you got into visual effects to begin with even before star wars i know uh one of your first projects was iconic in itself which was the original star trek series maybe you can talk a little bit about how you initially got into the role in high school i i I was a photographer for the la examiner sports section and coming out of high school i did have a tuition paid scholarship so Mm -hmm. i had a scholarship to pepperdine was it it was it was a journalism scholarship and I thought, you know what, I could do that, but I really kind of, I think I want to be a photojournalist, but at the same time, I think before I go into college and I'm not sure what exactly I want to study, I'm going to get some life experience. So I joined the Navy. I went on a day in the Navy cruise uh, when I was senior, just before I graduated high school. Part of my friend and I, we were supposed to be on the, on the cruiser taking grip and grin shots of the brass and people from the LA Examiner, but we decided that we would get on a, uh, on a destroyer, which looked like, looked more exciting. And so we, we went on this destroyer, and they were dropping depth charges off the fantail, and they were firing the five-inch gun. They were shooting at socks being towed by B-26s. I mean, it was like the big show. And they, they I mean, to start with, they take us down to the, the commissary, and, 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 you know, it's how you want your egg, it really catering to us, you know. And I thought, God, this is great. I think I'm going to join the Navy. And so my, my friend and I joined the Navy within days. And so I wound up, I, I could pick my rank. So I, I, I decided to become a photo mate, photographer's mate. And because I joined under this particular program where if you had a high school diploma and you joined, they, they had to guarantee the rate that you wanted to, to be in. And so I wanted to be a photographer's mate. So they, I, I, after boot camp, I went to this prep school in Norman, Oklahoma, went from calculus, from polynomials to calculus in six weeks, and the rules of physics, Pythagorean, the, all the theorems, and all that kind of stuff. And then I went to photo school in Florida. I was in photo school in Florida, top of my class, because I was already an accomplished photographer. I had a, I had a really great photo teacher in high school that also taught physics so i knew the chemistry the optics the the mechanics of photography and and how to make prints and all this kind of stuff and so i was pretty accomplished and i'd already built a darkroom or two on my on my own when i got to photo school i was at the top of my class i went uh, one sunday i fell asleep in the sun at the swimming pool and got terribly sunburned and and so i went to the the uh, infirmary and i said you know what i got a terrible sunburn can you help me and he says yeah i can do i can help you he says but i have to put you on report which meant that i would have you know that's basically being arrested and he and and i said what do you mean and he says well you're not you're not supposed to get sunburned you're a navy property you're supposed to take care of your body because you're it's not your body it's the navy and so basically i said you know what i'm gonna go to the px and get something you know and he said no, that's that's a good idea so i did and 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 the warrant officer that was took pity on me because it it was so bad that it took me like a minute to stand up where I'd faint. And 
So he basically let me sit in his office for about a week or 10 days and while this abated. And I was reading like the Ansel Adams, all the advanced photography, and I became friendly with, with, with Warren Officer Conger. And so at the end of the school, I mean, said, you know what, I want to be on a ship. Put me on an aircraft carrier, you know. At least, I mean, I know it's a, I know it's a drag, but at least I'll be able to see the world somewhat. And so I didn't want to get stationed in Corpus Christi for two years, you know. I got the plum orders. I got I got the two years in Japan. But I know Congress did that for me. That was really wonderful, and and it changed my life. You know that sunburn. We have all we all have our turning points. So I wound up in Japan, and when I was over there, I, we used to shoot aircraft accident reports, and we used to have to scramble. We were, our, our photo lab was next to about a block away from the runway, on this in this big. Um, Naval Air Station, which which had been the Japanese air station during the war, so the Americans took it over. That's where MacArthur landed. I mean, during the occupation. Uh, while I was there, I brand new Mitchell movie camera that had been ordered by somebody, and it, it was delivered after he left. Whoever ordered it, and so it had never been opened. Mm-hmm. So I opened this up and I catapulted me into the movie business, and and I went to the base library, and again I found a fantastic Bible which was called a grammar of the film written by Remus Foswood, 1928. And it was like, it was a treatise on the silent movie, which I thought was fantastic because I learned how to shoot silent movies because we didn't have any sound equipment anyway. So I didn't want to, I shot a couple of, of documentary training films while I was there that were silent. And I, I set up a, a motion picture department and, and rebuilt a processing machine and, so I really got into movies while I was in Japan, and when while I was there, this Marine who was the he was the only jarhead in the, in the, in the you know, there was forty of us in the in the photo lab, and and he said, Edwin, you don't want to go to Brooks Institute, you want to go to USC Cinema and go, you know, and I said, oh yeah, and so I started talking to him about that, and and so I, I wrote a letter to USC and asked them to send me the information on the on the courses they had. They sent it to me, and I had I was all set up to do that by the time I was ready to get out. And so when I got out, I was working in the morning, studying in the afternoon, and going to school at night, five days a week. And I could take you could take as many units as you wanted. It was at that time it was only six hundred dollars a term, and there were four terms in a year. That was that was that meant that it was like twelve hundred dollars a year it would cost you to go to USC. Now it's about probably a hundred thousand dollars a year. So, you know, things have changed since the 60s. So I, I went to, I, I did three years and two at, at USC. Uh, I took a heavy load of classes and transferred to day school, but that meant my parents would have to fund me completely and I wouldn't be able to contribute, you know. And so I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go get a job because I think they looked down their nose at, at, at college grads and you uh, in the business anyway, I heard. Uh, so I decided to bloody my knuckles on the uh, doors of Hollywood and and I couldn't get a job because uh, you know I wasn't in the, I wasn't in the union and if I went to the union they said well you can't get in the union until you have a job for 30 days and and so I was <laughs> it's kind of like a catch-22 and I then uh, put my resume into the Department of Employment in Hollywood and Joe Westheimer who had a had a company that was down the street actually from the Department of Employment, got a hold of my resume, and he called me up, and he said, why don't you come in and let's talk? 
And so basically I went in to talk to Joe and Joe had this company that did optical effects, titles and inserts for, and, and some special effects for TV shows and, and features. And so while working with Joe, I got this job. I mean, I was shooting with Ernie Haller, who shot, who got an Oscar for Gone to Win, James Wong Howe, who shot HUD, and Hal Moore, Babyface. I mean, all these famous cinematographers who come by to shoot inserts. They were, they were shooting TV shows or commercials or... Or features. I mean, uh, James Long Howe was shooting a feature called The Glory Guys, and I, I basically uh, set up the first headshot set up with Albert Whitlock, who was one of the great matte painters. All these people were my mentors, and I just happened, I was, I was in the right place at the right time. It was just amazing. I spent about four years with Joe, and uh, then I started listening to Bob Dylan and Jimi Hendrix, and, and before you know it, I was a hippie. But I was a working, I was a working hippie. I was, I, I was shooting album covers. My, I shot my best friend in high school, who was playing at this place called the Princess Louise, which is a coastal schooner from the early, early to 1910s to the to the maybe the 40s or 50s. And they train, they turned it into a nightclub. I mean, it was a really neat place, and it had, it had, you know, in the day, in its day, people could get, get a cabin, and they would. They would go from L.A. to San Francisco to Nome, Alaska. And so I shot a session on his group, and I did about 12 poses with the whole group. And lo and behold, the Fifth Dimensions manager shared the, the office of their agent, and he saw my proof sheets, and he said, who is this guy? I want him to shoot my group. And so I wound up, my second gig was to fly to Vegas and shoot an album cover for the Fifth Dimension. So I was I was a fairly, I was a successful rock and roll photographer and, and uh and I did that for for several years. Then I invented the pig nose amplifier, which is a mm-hmm. portable guitar amp. And, and all guitar players don't care much about Star Wars. They want to talk about the pig nose, you know. So anyway, uh, then uh, I met Richard Taylor, who was a graphic artist. And, and he had met Bob Abel, who had a commercial Hollywood. And I got introduced to Bob Abel through Richard. And we started out shooting time-lapse clouds. Before you know it, I was working on early um, motion control systems for shooting animation. Mm -hmm. And at that time, this was in 74 and 75, and and I knew, I I heard about John Dykstra and and work he was doing out in the valley, but I'd never met him. But we all knew about each other because we were all like crackpot photographers working on weird systems, you know. And so one day I got a call from, from John, and John said, come on, let's talk about this movie called Star Wars. And so I went out to meet with John, and Gary Kurtz was there, the producer. And so I started talking with them about shoot, you know, how to shoot miniatures and everything. Really hit it off really well, and in about half an hour I had the job to be the, the wow. uh, cinematographer for the miniature effects unit on Star Wars. So that's how I got into it in a nutshell. It was a um, an empty kind of a warehouse, and there was a coffee table in the middle of the warehouse and a telephone on it. And otherwise, it was empty. So we had to we had to start out. We had to build a whole system, which took approximately nine months to do. I mean, I was lucky to work with Joe Johnston, who was a, who's become a, a pretty famous director now, who, who did a lot of the design work and. Uh, Graham McCune and Robbie Blalack for the opticals. And I brought uh, one of my guys that I had worked on blue screen early in my career with this guy who had, who had done the composite, all the composite works for Mad Mad World. 
I brought him up to teach Robbie how to do a blue screenshot. And we, we, we kind of started, we were all flying with the wind, you know, we we're leaves in the wind and we landed in the right place. And, and, uh, and so it took about nine months for us to build the system. And, and, and we, so we hadn't had, we didn't have a shot in the can yet. Uh, actually, the first shot I did was was the uh, the escape pod that the dro- that the droids got into and, and escaped from the star destroyer. All of us were uh, giving our best ideas we could to uh, to, to doing this, and, and, and we had a limited budget, but it was it was a lot more than we had prior to that. And, and we were we were basically building the system out of surplus parts. I got an optical printer and a couple of rotoscope machines from uh, from this friend that I knew at Paramount Studios and the, the printer had been the printer had last been used on to the Ten Commandments and in fact the, the, the last write up the last shot that was written up was was still on the write up table and, and they just basically left the left the room and didn't come back and so nobody had been up there for like 20 years you know you know, so I did Star Wars, and then after uh, after I finished Star Wars, I uh, joined for a while with John and a bunch of guys on this company called Apogee, and, and but I told him I'm going to get called to to supervise Empire Strikes Back. Right. And if I do, you, you got you got to understand that I'd be stupid at job, right. and they all did understand that. And John John had basically I don't know he kind of canceled himself out on that somehow, and so basically I wound up running the show at ILM and, mm-hmm. and I moved the entire studio up to Marin County and I sold my house and moved up there for about four and a half years. And I did Empire Strikes Back and Raiders and Poltergeist and Jedi. And I got four Academy Awards and nomination <laughs> in that in those in those movies. So it was, it was it was, you know, it was great times. Yeah. Actually I just watched uh, the video that's on, I guess, YouTube now of you and the team winning the special achievement award for Empire. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was the mentioning of the matte paintings and having to work with the matte paintings and with Harrison Ellenshaw's matte paintings specifically. Uh, we actually just interviewed him a couple days ago, and I would love to kind of talk about Empire specifically and the challenges of Hoth and working with miniatures and these kind of stark white matte paintings. Well, you know, and, and you know, Ralph McQuarrie did some of those paintings right. also. I mean, Ralph was kind of an illustrator style. His, his style was illustrative, but they but they still worked, and they they did doll them up a little bit for the for the special edition. But uh, but Ralph McQuarrie was the unsung hero visually of Star Wars. I mean, the four tipping points of Star Wars, in my opinion, are Ralph McQuarrie's paintings, which enabled George to sell the project to, to Laddie over at 20th Century Fox, and us picking us to do the visual effects, because I don't think there was anybody in the world that could have done it but mm-hmm. us at that time, because we, we were just at the right, we were all kind of at the right point in our careers, and we were at our inventive peak. And so that was the second one. The third one was... You know, I, I was worried about Star Wars being a teenage movie because I was worried about those lines like trust in the Force, Luke. You know, who's going to make that line play? Brando? So when I when I heard that George had cast Alec Guinness, I thought, oh, God, it's it's a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I had I had 
faith at that moment that this was going to it was unseat Jaws, and it, and it was, and and basically we wound up. Uh, capturing the audience. I would definitely add Ben Burt and sound to that list and even Marshall Lucas and the editing. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. The fourth one was John Williams and, and John Williams' score. But but certainly Joe Johnston and, and Ben Burt and, and Harrison Ford, who wound up being the star of the movie over George's dead body. You know, I mean, George had, you know, George had Luke Skywalker show and, and Harrison upstaged him and he just couldn't help it. He, he was, he was, he had, he had the charismatic, I mean, his character made Han Solo into the, uh, into the star of the series. I mean, Carrie Fisher was four foot 11. You know, she was, she was four, she wasn't even five feet tall. And, and, you know, at one point when we were doing, when we did the, uh, rap party for Empire at, at EMI Studios. Terry comes in with Paul They were a unit at that time. And Paul Simon's five feet tall. And <laughs> they were like the Munchkins coming in. And and actually, you know, Gary Kurtz, he's, not, he's a uh, Quaker. And he, he has that Quaker beard, you know, with no mustache, right? And he, he's very stoic. He's like the Spock. And so basically at the party, the crew said that they had a gift for Gary and they this guy comes up and hands him a box and it's a stick on mustache <laughs> and, and and Gary we got a very quick smirk out of Gary Kurtz on that <laughs> one of, I mean going back to Empire one of one of my favorite shots and probably one of the most technical ones for that film had to be the asteroid chase itself what was kind of the, the mindset there of, of making the team you know work with all these different elements to kind of combine into a final shot like that? Well, you know, first of all, I, I built a special optical printer for Empire. And the thing about Empire Strikes Back was there could be no mat line. There could be no mat lines in the snow, the snow king sequence. I mean, here you've got these light gray speeders flying around with lots of bl motion blur, flying around on a white background against bl pale blue sky and white clouds and, and snow and any mat line would have would have nixed that sequence it would not have worked in favor of mat right. lines and and there wasn't anybody in hollywood at that time that had conquered the mat line and so basically we had to do that on empire strikes back with, with the photochemical process and it was a very complex uh, process that required uh, you know chemical knowledge and, and and special developers developed multiple mats, one of which would, there were two mats, basically, one of which held the, the edge back, edge off, that, so that the, the blurred edge would mat against the background. But the thing is that that mat was too thin to hold the ship back from the rest of the, the, you know, so the rest of the ship would have been transparent somewhat. So I had to then make another mat that was shrunk, that was, that was inside the blurred area, that would enable the holdout of the, of the ship and not let it superimpose over mm -hmm. the background. And so basically that's how we did it. We had our own processing machine and we had, uh, we had a chemical mix department and it was a very complex photographic problem that had to be worked out. And, and, and we did that. Mm -hmm. And I had some incredibly talented people. I mean, one of which, one of whom was Mark Vargo. Who, who actually put the most complicated shot in, in Empire together, where they, where they shook the uh, thousand tie ships out of the hat, you know, into the camera, mm -hmm. 
And there's this one incredible attack sequence. And, and Mark did that one composite. I think it cost him, took him 14 hours to do the composite. <laughs> wow. And all kinds of back problems. There were, there were, there were some ships were met and were going over others, but you couldn't tell because the thing was happening so quickly. Mm-hmm. And, and the thing is that, that, that that's one of the things about filmmaking is you, you have to learn how to cheat and, and, and learn how to cheat that in a way that you can get away with mm-hmm. because shots and visual effects are temporal and the audience only gets to see that shot for three seconds. I mean, you can go back and forth over a shot 40 times in the screening room at, at three frames a second and, and analyze every ish, every iota of the shot. But the audience only gets to see it for three seconds. So you, you can get away with murder. And, and you're, not, you're not trying to get away with murder. You're trying to make the shot work in a way that, that is possible for you to do the shot. And to make the shot perfect, it's not, to do, it's not financially uh, wise to try to do that because you... You have to finish all these shots by a release date, mm-hmm. and so you have to you have you have to parse your time. So so part of visual effects, part of the art of visual effects is the art of spending money and spending mm-hmm. time. You have X amount of time to do things, and you have to do it in the most efficient way possible. And and you have to depend on your ability to to cheat to get there. With these Star Wars movies and kind of the technology you guys had to develop so quickly, whether it was first, you know, John Dykstra's camera, but then the one that you had to create for Empire to make the motion-controlled the, the Vista Cruiser. Well, I've actually designed the Dykstra flight. Oh, wow. I actually designed the camera. I, I, I designed the camera and the, the Trojan head and the su- suspended camera. I mean, it was going to be a camera where the camera was going to be on, a, you know, like a traditional dolly. And I said, no, you don't want to do that because... You're never going to get through this mountain of sentry stands and mm-hmm. wires and everything that it takes to do the shot. So you hang the camera, mm-hmm. you suspend the camera, and you shoot, and we make the shots upside down. The opening shot of Star Wars was, to me, the most important shot in, in, in the movie. Because if that shot didn't wow the audience and set them back in their seats, so in other words, that, that shot had to capture the audience's mind. And, and, and make them believe, and, and, and it was mm-hmm. done with a four, less than four-foot-long model. And that little docking bay underneath yeah. was about four and a half inches in, in length. And, and the Rebel Blockade Runner, right. which was originally going to be the, the uh, Millennium Falcon, was shot, this was a four-and-a-half-foot model that was going to be <laughs> sucked up into a four-and-a-half-inch docking bay. Those were the kind of scale problems that I had to deal with. And so... That with that shot, we had the blockade runner come slamming, slamming over the camera, and then you, all of a sudden this, this monster ship starts coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and it keeps coming, and the lasers are happening, the sound effects, and Johnny Williams' music is booming, and it's like we were there. I mean, I finally saw the whole thing put together at the Chinese theater, and it was like when you do visual effects, it's it's a it's a silent business in other words there's no sound effects so all the shots that we're looking at are silent and the only sound is oh look at that that problem look at that problem you know are people talking about this shot or that you know this aspect or that aspect of the shot when you finally go and see i mean music and sound bring the movie alive and thank god for john ben burke because they both did incredible work and and the movie's 
the movie wouldn't work without both of them. And also Joe Johnston, who was, I mean, he was, he was responsible for a lot of the designs. I mean, the original designs, but they were like basic general shapes. And they were developed into magnificent models with Joe Johnson interacting with Grant McCune and the rest of the model shop crew. No, really. He took he took those Colin Cantwell sketches and turned them into something that could actually like filmable, which was Colin Cantwell. I mean, I don't know whatever happened to those, but I mean, they were little models that were about a foot long, and yeah. you know, they were too shiny, and you know, they're kind of corny looking, you know. But they were developed, and 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 the thing is that the, the Millennium Falcon that I mentioned earlier, which became the Rebel Blockade Runner, George came in one day and he said. You know that looks too much like Space 90, 1999. We have to come up with something more interesting. <laughs> and he was right on. Yeah. And out of that came the thirty-six inch diameter uh, Millennium Falcon. You know that was asymmetrical and it was this magnificent construct. And it was it was it was the spaceship mm-hmm. that will define all spaceships in years to come because it was it was really brilliant. With with Return of the Jedi, especially kind of moving into the final part of the trilogy, how did you learn from what you did on Star Wars and Empire to kind of make that really one of the most incredible technical achievements of the of the trilogy itself? Well, you know what, I mean, it is kind of what was missing at the end of Jedi was Marsha, and I mean, Marsha Lucas was the heart of Star Wars, in my opinion. I think a lot of people believe agree with that, I mean, and and basically. She, she was being dis- she was distancing herself from George, and George is is a hard guy to take sometimes. I guess I mean he was a brilliant guy, and I love him, and and, and I appreciate him, and, I, and you know I would fall down, on, you know, in front of him and, and bow to him, you know, because he gave me my career. But the thing is that at the same time, I put my heart into it, and I gave him his career too, in a way. What what we did for for George uh, on Star Wars was was not appreciated. It was it, it was it may have been appreciated when he put his head on the pillow, but it wasn't when he put his voice to the mic. In other words, we did not get any kudos from George for Star Wars, and basically, Star Wars would not have worked without us. And we all had blood in our shoes at the end of the movie, and continued to have that. And and Jedi. And Jedi was a real grind because Jedi was pumped out at an incredible rate of speed. Uh, we did like there were 900 effect shots in Jedi, not including all the lasers. Wow! It was the most number. It was the highest number of effect shots in any movie, and 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 yet it, it kind of wrapped everything up in a bow. And it and it was it was a finale, but it wasn't. It didn't have the kind of pizzazz that that. That the trilogy that the trilogy needed, I think. I'd love to talk about your non-Star Wars work first with Raiders, but then moving into the the boss film era, really. So with Raiders and your partnership with George, and then with with Steven Spielberg, who would later work with, what was kind of the the change there from working on Star Wars to now working on something a little more contemporary, a little less based in this space fantasy? Basically, what I did is I did after Empire, I went off to London and spent a few months over there with with Steven, and I was shooting second unit. I was deck director of visual effects supervisor, and never, I never got second unit director credit, but I did a lot of sequences and scenes in the movie. And, and the thing is, it, it was really fun to work with, George, uh, with Steven, because, I mean, Steven, the thing about him is that he is confident in his own capabilities. 
and people, I think directors that are not confident in their, their capabilities are the ones that you have to present the idea so it sounds like their idea. And, and Steve, Stephen is not that way. Stephen is interested in hearing ideas from anywhere. And when you go in, and the thing is interesting, mm-hmm. when you go in with an idea to pitch it to Stephen, then pitch it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And what started out as a good idea winds up being a great idea. Because you've honed it down and made it really sing, and 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 that's what was really fun working had working with Stephen, and it was Kat, it was Kathy Kennedy coming out of her egg also, because Kathy started mm-hmm. out she was basically kind of schlepping his guns around London, and and I mean I used to go shooting with Stephen, you know, uh-huh. we're we're both both uh, uh, shotgun shooters. Apparently Stephen stole Kathy away from Milius <laughs> on uh, 1941. <laughs> And and, and uh-huh. then then she wound up on Raiders. And the thing is, you know, on Raiders, it was interesting because on 1941, which was a comedy, Stephen overdid it right. and it would do like 13, 14 takes on a shot. And you don't do that when you do a comedy. I mean, I'm working on a comedy with, with Harold Ramos. I mean, we did multiplicity and we very rarely did more than four takes. Usually it was one or two. Usually uh-huh. it was two or three takes. And you had confidence in your, your actors and in their timing, and you didn't overdo it. And, and mm-hmm. 1941 was expensive, and it wasn't successful. And, and so basically, George said, this is a B-movie. You're going to shoot these number of pages today, ones out that you didn't do, and make it work with what you did. And so basically, Howard Kazanjian now was brought in to produce Raiders, mm-hmm. and he was the, the, keep, the gatekeeper. And, and he had to keep Stephen under control. And Stephen hated it from the first. But after about two or three weeks, he was really into it. Raiders was a, was, I mean, George said, this is like cereal. Yeah, it's a party cereal. And, and that's the way we're going to do it. I mean, it's like a B movie. And, and so it's three, it's three takes and not 13 takes. And, and you know, and so you, but you basically have to keep to the thing. The other thing is, Stephen came over to England, the unions of the British crews had eight-hour shooting days. And if you wanted to work an extra half hour, you had to poll the crew. And if any member of the crew said, well, I can't do a half hour, <laughs> then they couldn't. So it was like it was like the directors were hogtied by the unions. And that, that, kind of, that was one of the things that kind of killed the British film industry. But... When we started shooting Raiders, and before you know it, we were shooting eight hours, nine hours, ten hours a day, and the and the and the crew was into it, and it was a really great crew, and and there was a lot of I mean, it was a lot of really great creativity that came about as a result of that, and and Raiders was a hell of a lot of fun. All right, let me slide into Polar Guys because Polar Guys that was like the graduate course in visual effects for me, and. And to me, that's where I really gelled, because I'd done Star Wars, which was which was a fantasy, and you can get away with a lot of stuff on in Star Wars that you can't get away with when you're doing a, sh- a movie that's taking place in your neighbor's house, and that's what Poltergeist was. Poltergeist was a movie that was taking place in your neighborhood as an American, and so therefore everything that you did in Poltergeist had to look real, even though it couldn't possibly be. And so, it, so you had to craft it in such a way, dramatically, that it was going to grab them 
so that they didn't have a chance to uh, examine it. And I mean, another, I mean, to back up into matte painting for a minute and with Raiders, and you can bring me back to Poltergeist room. But when we were doing Raiders, I brought because Michael Pangrazio was a great matte painter, but he wasn't a matte painter that knew how to paint matte paintings yet. But when we started doing Raiders, I hired Alan Maley, who had been the head of the Disney matte department, to come to. To, to come into ILM and teach Pangrazio how to do map paintings. And I had mentioned earlier when we were talking in, uh, about how, how shots of map paintings are temporal paintings. And, and basically the best map painter that you can find is an impressionist. Because mm -hmm. whenever you see a matte shot, you're only going to see it for three or four, maybe five seconds, rarely longer than that. And so therefore... What's most important is the lighting and, and the impression that it strikes on the, on the audience. So the impression, the impressionist knows how to do that. And, and Alan Maley was an impressionist, and he almost prided himself on doing these incredibly loose paintings. I mean, his paintings were so loose, you, if you look at them up close, you say, how did that possibly work? Well, it worked because it was only seen for a few seconds. There was one shot, for example, where... In the in the chase where they're ch where Indy's chasing him in the truck, they're chasing the, the Nazis in the truck, and he find, goes underneath the truck and comes up up on the top and 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 throws shows the truck off the cliff and then gets on a horse. Before he gets into the truck, he's on a horse, right? And he's chasing the chasing the Nazis in that that open air Mercedes. And so basically, at one point, when he's he gets in control of the truck and he and he and he pauses the Nazis to go over the cliff. Okay, so he's, he's in the, he finally took control of the truck, came on the horses, came off the horse, got in the truck, he's, he's nudging him off, off the road, and, and there's one shot where he finally gets, he, knocks, he nudges him off the cliff, and so they come, go tim, tumbling off the cliff, and there's stop motion guys flailing around in the sky, and this is maybe a four second shot. And Alan Maley did this matte painting of the background, which is a blur. I mean, the, basically, the camera's going past this at such a rate that it's all a blur. And, the, and you wouldn't believe what the painting looked like. But it was so effective. <laughs> and another, another great shot is, the, is, the, is, the, uh, is the scene where they're all getting on the uh, Panama Clipper. I, I shot that whole scene. I, I shot that sequence with Stephen and... And we got a, uh, basically we found a two twin engine plane. It was a solar, but it looked like a biplane. And it, but it was in a lot in Oakland. How they got it there, I can't imagine. But anyway, so we went out and we shot the Solent in this lot. And we built a platform about 12 feet long for some of the people to be walking along and, and getting into the plane which was on a dock that was a painting and it was, and it was shot. We shot the, 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 the plate at the uh, Treasure Island Naval base. It was, we had the camera on the Treasure Island mm -hmm. Naval base and, and shot the plate for the, for the, for the pier. The plate was a three part shot. And again, if you look at the painting, mm -hmm. it's like very loose. It's an impressionist. I mean, Renoir could have painted, could have painted this. It was a, an impressionist painting. But the thing is that when you saw the picture, you were glued on the people getting into the plane because that was drawing your that was drawing your macula, uh -huh. what worked. And, and, and the, the, the uh, 
reflections on the, the plane from the water, the dappling of the water, the sunlight on the water, all that kind of stuff was added. And so that was that was a great shot that lasted only a few seconds. I mean, every every shot in those movies, whether it's Star Wars or Poltergeist or Raiders, are just masterpieces. Every single shot, you can pause and stare at them for hours, really, and kind of figure out what how it was done. And you know the thing that, in my opinion, the shots in Raiders were superior to the shots that was done for E.T., but E.T. won. The shots, no, I'm sorry, the shots for Raiders, actually Raiders won over Dragon Slayer. The shots in Dragon Slayer probably were more significant than the shots that were in Raiders. But Raiders won. And next time, Poltergeist was up against E.T., so Poltergeist was up against E.T. And, the, and, and, and I think the shot, the, the, the work in Poltergeist was superior to that of, of E.T. But E.T. was such a big audience draw that he won. So those two Oscars should have been probably switched. Dragon Slayer probably should have won over Raiders. And Poltergeist should probably have won over E.T. But, but in both cases, the, the popular movie won. But anyway... Uh, well, Mr. Edlund, thank you so much. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. All right. Bye. Thank you again to Mr. Edlund for the time we spent on multiple days to tell his story. It really was an enormous honor to have him on the show. For more information, whether about speaking appearances or his illustrious career, go to his website, richardedlund.com. Until next week, stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you.